Welcome to Becker and Broom on Bullets Forever, a podcast for the thinking Washington Wizards fan. My name is Ben Becker, and if Bill Simmons can dub Daryl Morey as Dork Elvis, my co-host is at very least the Celine Dion of Wizards nerds. Hello, Kevin Broom. Uh, Ben, I will always love you. (laughs) Uh, Kevin, before we jump into the conversation, I have a couple of notes. First, just a huge thanks to everyone who has listened over these first few weeks. The response has been awesome. We see your tweets. We thank you. We humbly ask you to please subscribe. In fact, do it now. We'll pause so you don't miss anything. Subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud, etc. Let us know if you have any issues with that, but you should be good. Please subscribe to Becker and Broom. Secondly, another thank you to Jake and Albert and all the good folks over at Bullets Forever. If you love the Wizards, and if you're listening to us, the odds are overwhelming that you do, go check out Bullets Forever. There is truly diverse content for any Wizards fan. Everything from the nerdy stat stuff that Kevin and I talk about to name changes and all this other good stuff. They're covering the Mystics and their dramatic makeover really well, so be sure you're checking out Bullets Forever. And with that, let's jump in. Kevin, another good week for our Wizards, which is still an adjustment and a weird thing to say. Two and one overall, that one loss obviously being the heart-stopping and heartbreaking overtime loss to Cleveland. Then the Wizards survived what was really a predictable letdown game in Brooklyn, but they did get out with a win. And then they beat Indiana to snap the Pacers' seven-game win streak. You were absolutely right that the Cleveland game was going to be a nip-and-tuck affair. What did you make of the week overall? The schedule makers definitely did the Wizards a favor with scheduling Brooklyn right after that Cleveland game because that was a, a game where they could sort of sleepwalk for 46 minutes just about and then still pull out a win because you know, Brooklyn is really bad and it seems like they're trying to lure, lose. You know, they had Karis Levert on the floor in overtime, which is uh, almost the equivalent of just you know, a human tank. But uh, at any rate, that Cleveland game was great. It was awesome to hear so many people talking about it as the game of the season in the NBA. It was wildly entertaining. And, you know, LeBron fouled out. I think that's the first time he's fouled out in probably 10 years. I, I haven't looked that up, I'm guessing. But, you know, Beal was just phenomenal in that game. And, Porter was phenomenal, and this, like I said, wildly entertaining and a hell of a lot of fun. It was it was an amazing game, amazing experience. I watched the overtime standing on my couch um, <laughs> with my wife looking over from the kitchen, like, "Hey, are you okay?" Um, yeah, your Tom Cruise uh, my, moment. Exactly. Uh, my my fears about the Otto Porter matchup unfortunately came to fruition, and and. and Porter's great, and offensively, I love him. And, uh, you know, the, the Wizards, the, the Cavs couldn't stop the Wizards offensively. Yeah. When 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 you have a, a physical 3-4 like LeBron and Love, uh, it's, it's really, it's a tough situation for Otto. When Otto was playing the four or when he'd switch on to Love, Love was was taking him down to the post and scoring easily or, or the, you know, the Cavs are getting threes off it. It's something that if... if you know that if the Wizards are thinking about winning a seven-game series against the Cavs, I have to think that addressing that in some fashion 
is is something that that comes up in the trade line, deadline discussions. We can touch on that a little bit more later. Um, what what was your what was your take on the Indiana win? Did 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 you have the Wizards as a significant favorite going into that? Both that and the Brooklyn game struck me as the type of games that that Wizards teams past would have in fact found a way to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, they have this great showing and all this momentum. Truly, the quintessential moral victory on national TV mm-hmm. on Monday night, and and you know, you just. In the past, they would find a way to, to lose that momentum, and then they come out and and, and win the next two. Um, what do you think of Indiana? Well, the Indiana was a nice win in the sense that they're – I mean, Indiana hasn't been good, but they've been good lately. And so to beat them was nice. You know, I expected the Wizards to win that one. I had them favored. I don't remember the percentage exactly, you know, their percentage chance of winning, but it was a pretty solid. They were at home, and, you know, that was one that they should have won. In fact, really since we recorded last, it's kind of gone exactly to form. You know, if you use the full season's worth of data, as we've we've talked about in my uh, prognostication machine, the, you know, they were, I expected them to lose a close game to Cleveland. You know, like I said, they had like a 47% chance of winning or something like that. And then they should have beat Brooklyn. They did. And they should have beat Indiana. And they did. So coming up, you know, it looks like the the next two they should win before they go into the All-Star break. And and these are are two, at least at the superficially, they're tough games. Uh, Oklahoma City and... And Russell Westbrook, obviously, they're coming off a very emotional drubbing at home to Kevin Durant and and the Warriors. So they come to Verizon Center Monday night, and I don't, and and I would expect a, a reasonably tough game there. And then the Wizards get a couple days off before going to Indianapolis Thursday night for a rematch with the Pacers. Mm-hmm. You, you think you think the Wizards are our favorites in both these games? Yeah, I've got them as a sixty percent favorite in against OKC, meaning that I would expect that they'd have a 60% chance of winning that game and then uh, 52% chance of winning against Indiana. So that's coin flip odds. It's a road game, so it's going to be a little tougher. But they sh- they're favored in both of those. Well, so that's, again, weird and incredible. It would, it would bring the Wizards at what? It would bring them to 34 and 21 going into the All-Star break. 50 wins would be would would be very much in sight or at least in the very high 40s uh what are your updated win projections looking like um uh, exactly what you just said you know upper 40s to 50 if you use the full season's worth of data i would expect somewhere for 48 to 50 wins and then if you throw out the first 10 like we talked about last week just an extended preseason they could get as high as 53 you know, 53 is not out of the question. They've got some a bunch of sort of coin flip odds games coming up the last, you know, the, the home stretch of the season, and they have a ton of road games. Just to give you an idea, they're through the first, you know, to date so far, home court advantage has been worth about three-tenths of a point in, you know, per game in scoring differential. So the Wizards are plus 2.25, so about three-tenths of that is... That's per game. 
about three-tenths of that is just home court advantage. Well, over the end of the season, that's going to change to about uh, they're going to lose about a half a point, a little more than that per game because they're going to be on the road so much. Obviously something to keep an eye on. Even where they sit right now, the fact that they only need to go 16 and 13 to finish with 48 wins, it seems it would indeed be huge if they could win this next two, these next two before the break because then we're starting to get into favorable seating in the Eastern Conference and mm-hmm. who knows if they get hotter than than I'd expect. You know, if they do end up in that 53-win range, and who knows how? I mean, they, they could theoretically be in 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 range of the number one seed, which is uh, <laughs> which is unreal. Um, well, it's it's you know it's kind of what we talked about that there's no super team in the East. You know, Cleveland is good, and maybe they're better in the playoffs than they are in the regular season, but there's no team that's overwhelmingly good, and the Wizards are just as good as really any of the teams except perhaps Cleveland. And therein lies the opportunity because, as you said, there's no super team. The Wizards are good. If they can make a move or multiple moves to significantly improve their rotation, they could do something special in the playoffs this year. Mm -hmm. And that's why I want to have a little bit of a conversation about Kelly Oubre. Mm -hmm. As when we... When we talk about what types of trades could the Wizards make to improve themselves, there's a lot of talk of sending out bad salary and some sort of pick. First round pick this year, next year, there are reasons why uh, either one of those things could be a good thing. But at the end of the day, we're talking about sending out unproductive players and assets that aren't currently on the roster as a means to get talent back. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about Ubre because he is obviously someone that's on the Wizards roster. Uh, a tweet from uh, Truth About It's Troy Halliburton caught my eye in which he posted the Wizards' individual net ratings since January 1st. Ubre uh, came out at a net rating of 7.7. That's ahead of Otto's. So first, explain what net rating is and, and also explain to me how significant a player's individual net rating over a period of a month plus is. How instructive is that information? Right. So I'm not sure exactly what Troy was getting at with that because, you know, it's the kind of thing where he, I'd have to just ask him a few questions is, you know, is that the team on off rating, you know, like offensive rating minus defensive rating when he's on the floor? Is it, you know, what exactly that is? But, you know, a month and a half of net rating, it doesn't tell us that much, you know, especially if you're looking at a plus minus type of thing. You need a lot of data for it to be meaningful. And, you know, a month and a half isn't a lot of data. I mean, when the plus minus guys are usually looking at seasons, like plural seasons worth of data or, you know, full season worth of data. And, you know, then you start running, especially when you start adding in previous seasons, you may not be capturing what the guy's doing right now, that sort of thing. So it's interesting. And I think it's illustrative of that the team is rolling and that they're playing very well. And so you're going to have good up 
good on-off ratings. You're going to have good uh, net, you know, team net ratings, that sort of thing, across the lineup because they've been playing well. And so it doesn't really necessarily tell us that much. Um, actually, when you're looking at individual players, box score stats do quite well and are actually a little bit better in smaller sample sizes because they tend to be more stable than plus-minus data, a little less erratic and less prone to just totally fluky results. So, and th- that is interesting. One of the things that we've seen a lot, uh, we've seen a lot of analysis on Twitter and the like about this Wizards lineup with Ubre in for uh, for Markeith Morris. Mm-hmm. Uh, B-Ball Breakdown did a piece on it. A lot of people are highlighting the fact that this lineup uh, is a very effective lineup. Mm-hmm. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but but you might offer a word of caution that that doesn't necessarily say that Ubre's great. It just says that that lineup overall is an effective lineup. Yeah, that's always the key or critical, at least in my analysis, is to say what is causing the, the what is causing the effect that we're seeing. And I think that the the evidence would suggest, you know, when you look at like the box score stats and that kind of stuff, it's probably not Ubre. Now, the bright side is that Ubre is not destroying the lineup, but he's probably not the cause. You know, the the, the cause is that Wall, Porter, Gortat, and Beal are are good players, and you could put a lot of guys in there with them, and they're going to be, they're, they're going to have a good lineup. Well, in the, I guess yes and no. In theory, you could, but in the case of the Wizards, they can't. And and that's what <laughs> is interesting is that the bench has been so bad overall. And I want you to give us an update on that in a minute here. Yeah. But the bench has been so bad overall that Uber is the sixth man, and when you put him out with the starters, the lineup is still really good. Mm-hmm. That doesn't say that Ubre is great, but that obviously it's a team game. It doesn't matter about necessarily how good one guy is, but the unit is good when when this guy's on the floor with these other guys. That's that's no small deal to the Wizards right now because if Ubre is unavailable. Who, uh, my hunch is whoever's taking those minutes, uh, the the lineup's probably not performing as well. They're they're probably making that person uh, try to beat him, and and he's not able to. Yeah, I, I mean I understand that what you're saying. I this is one of those where if you went back and started drilling into, you know, game by game because that lineup has been on the floor for a total of about 186 minutes this season. So they're not playing that much together. And it's the kind of thing where if you drill down, you know, these big on-off results that we're seeing, there could be like one or two really big results that are pushing the data, you know, to an exaggerated thing. Now, I will say it looks like the lineup isn't falling apart. It's their second most used lineup. And they're not falling apart, at least when they're and they're doing quite well so far. Um, you know, in this with that lineup on, you know, they're, but they're also very good with the exact same lineup in, you know, Markeith Morris. And it could be that what we're seeing is you put any reasonably competent player in that spot and you, you are going to have a good lineup because of the other four guys. 
Tell me, give, give me a bench update before we jump back into Ubre. Uh, well, okay. Well, I was going to do just the opposite and talk about Ubre okay. for a second because you know we, talk we, we're Ubre. talking about Ubre. So I, I didn't start my time on January first, but I pulled up my like PPA tracker every. You know, I do the update every week or so. Don't necessarily publish it, but anyway, January fourth, he had a PPA of forty three, so slightly below replacement level. Very slight. I would just call that replacement level. On February 8th, after the game February 8th, last time I updated, his PPA was 44. So he's he's a replacement-level player, who's and the team is rolling while he's on the floor. So the suggestion, my suggestion would be sort of pump the brakes a little bit on how good Oubre's been and give credit to the other four guys who are all playing great, great ball. So to the bench now... Um, you may recall. Well, let's, sta- let's stay on Ubre for a second. Let's, oh, okay. Uh, what's interesting about Ubre, at least from an from an eye test standpoint, it seems like, and you would expect this from a young player, from a very young player, that there are some nights when he has it, and and he's very effective, and he makes shots, and he's good defensively, and then there are other nights when when he just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Again, not something that's surprising for someone his age. When I do a very uh, crass comparison using the the basketball reference player comparison finder, mm-hmm. and I look at him against guys who are similar in in body type and and who Wizards fans are perform are, are are familiar with, so I look at him against the likes of Trevor Ariza and Otto Porter. Their second seasons are not wildly divergent, and and their their performance through their second seasons. Obviously, Uber is only, uh, you know, not quite two thirds through his. They they don't look so different. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that I expect Uber to be as good as Porter, but at least when you look at it and you look at the type of player Ariza has become. It's not hard to imagine Ubre becoming that type of player. Does that make any sense to you? Sure. You know, I love doing comparisons, especially to historical players. I mean, that's it's fun to do, and it's often illustrative, you know, of what the player can do or what what kind of player. Because realistically, I mean, we've had enough NBA history that there aren't like brand new players. I mean, they're new guys, but typically they fit kind of similar molds and part of that's just because the nature of basketball you have different roles and different ways that players specialize and different ways that players contribute and those kinds of roles tend to be consistent through the years I mean they evolve of course as the game evolves but they're fairly consistent through the years now I as you probably know have what I jokingly sometimes call my statistical doppelganger machine and it doesn't look at things like body type or position it just looks at the numbers. And so I just just for you, I ran Ubre through my statistical doppelganger machine for this year so far um, to see who pops up. And the list probably isn't quite as optimistic as as yours. And I think part of the reason is because with the way that you did it was that you sort of looked at guys who kind of remind you of him or that you would like for him to come, become, and then you compare them to it and you're like, yeah, these numbers don't look that different. But the the heartless doppelganger machine takes a different view. So let me just read off some of the names uh, that pop up as comparisons. 
Uh, the first is P.J. Hairston. Then you got Johnny Taylor. I don't even remember him. He was a late 90s player with the Denver he Nuggets. He may have also been an R&B singer. I yeah. don't know if that's a plus or a minus. I think his R&B was probably better than his N- NBA career. Uh, Antoine Wright. Kentavious uh, Caldwell-Pope. So that's probably fairly promising. Um, Eric Washington. I kind of sort of remember him. Christian Iyenga. Uh, yeah, I don't remember him very well at all. Jeff Taylor, I kind of remember him. As I recall, he was with Charlotte. And the reason I remember him is because he had a very low PPA but was getting a ton of minutes. And, <laughs> yeah, the weird things that stick out in your mind, uh, right? So uh, Martel Webster, when he was 20, before he got hurt, I think that's promising because Martel Webster was a – Guy who could really play, he just had a lot of health problems, and he had a very serious back injury that really derailed his career. But he's a guy we saw what he could do when he got healthy in Washington. He was, you know, an above-average player, good, solid guy to, you know, to bring off the bench and to start uh, now and then. And you know, if Ubre became what a healthy Martel Webster could have been, I think we would be very happy with that. Uh, so going on down the list, Ben McLemore, yeah. Jay Crowder, when you know from his rookie year, I think that's a really promising thing. best player I, you know, you've mentioned yet by yeah, far in a way. Yeah, yeah. I, Jay should be a wizard, but you know. And so you keep going down the list. You get guys Chris Johnson, Quincy Pondexter, Aaron Aflalo when he was twenty three. You know, decent player. I mean, if Ubre became Aflalo, I don't think anybody would complain too much. Chris Singleton, who's uh, no longer in the NBA. And then go on down the list a little ways. You get like Desmond Mason. A little bit further down, you do get Otto Porter from his second year. So, you know, that would be great too if he could become as good as Otto is. Uh, Al Farouk Aminu Amino is on there. That's uh, And then at that point, you're getting to the point where players are starting to, you know, once you get beyond that, you're getting to players who are not really that similar. So we can sort of cut the list there. Well, I think you'd agree with me that with a with, with players who are this young and for whom you have this little data, there is a pretty wide variability in how good they can eventually become because yeah. we just Yeah, th- absolutely. There's so much room for growth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see that reflected in the list because you've got guys, you know, who Chris Singleton, for example, who's no longer in the league, versus a guy like Jay Crowder, who's a really solid player, very good player. So there's a there's a big range. And then, you know, if you go back to Ubre in college, remember I had him evaluated in just the using the statistical process that I do as you know, I think like a late lotto pick. And I ran a similar, you know, statistical doppelganger machine on um, through Yoda my ye old draft analyzer. And for the most part, the guys who showed up were NBA players, guys who had NBA careers. Um, so I'll just read you the the names that, you know, at the top that are most similar. P.J. Tucker from his freshman year, a guy who's had a solid professional career. Um, Victor Oladipo, his sophomore year. Uh, Marcus Denman, one of my Yoda favorites who got drafted in the second round by San Antonio. San Antonio sent him overseas to play and he broke his foot and hasn't really come back from that. So who knows? Uh, Luther Head, 
you know, he's bounced around a little bit. Quincy Miller, uh, his freshman year, and Rudy Gay's freshman year. One of the things that I, again, that as I squint optimistically, <laughs> as I often do before you invariably make me feel shitty, is um, one of the reasons I liked Otto Porter coming out of college was because of his significant improvement from his freshman to sophomore year. Because as we have talked about, all these guys who get to this level are incredibly talented. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important things a player can have, really the most important skills a player can have at, and demonstrate as a young at a young age is the ability to improve. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at Ubre's numbers, again, I don't have them in the depth that you do, but when I look at Ubre's production from year one to year two, I see improvement. And I think that's why I say, okay, I, I can see him becoming more along the lines of a Trevor Ariza type. I don't. I don't see a skill set as varied as Otto's, and 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 that's okay. Um, obviously, time will tell, but I I think there's at least that reason to be optimistic with him. You know, I don't want to come across as being down on Ubre because I think what we see from him is fairly normal in terms of young player. You know, who is still developing, still learning, all that kind of stuff. He he is better than he was last year. Not a not a ton better, but he is better. You know, he's at least at replacement level. Last year he was not that good. And you know, the question of course is how good will he be? And that's an that's of course an open question and that's I guess the wager that the Wizards have to make if they're going to keep him or do you trade him? And try to get somebody who's better now, you know, for the opportunity that they have this season. Well, you read my mind. That, that's <laughs> that's exactly what I want to talk about. So, so here here's Kelly Oubre. He he is the Wizards' sixth man. On the one hand, he is inexpensive, which is no unimportant thing given the construction of the, of the roster. He is likely to improve. And, and perhaps significantly, and as we've discussed, you know, that's the big question. He, he could turn into a very, very good player. On the other hand, uh, he's valuable on the trade market for those very reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and the, as you point out, he isn't yet consistently very productive. It, the, the, the lineup's good with him on the floor, but that's a different thing than saying Ubre's good. Right. And there's and, also an effect as well in that so many of the players that the Wizards put out there off the bench are awful, and they're so bad that a guy who is competent looks terrific in comparison. You know, it's kind of like going back a few years, you know, Jared Jeffries was like the Wizards' defensive stopper. Well, the reason he was considered the defensive stopper is because he was so bad on offense. You know, so he kind of became the stopper because he he was a self check on offense, and the you know much of the rest of the team was indifferent on defense. All right, so let's stay on Ubre. <laughs> Obviously, the, the the people who are making these types of decisions are human beings, and even if they have all the uh, d- data at their fingertips at the end of the day 
the Wizards are going to make a call on how good Oubre is. Other GMs are going to make a good call on not only how good he is, but how good he can be. My, my question is, how good of a return do the Wizards need to justify trading him? Based on what you know of him, how good of a player do the Wizards need? What, what, feels, what, what feels right to you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Well, well and let me ex- let me extend the question this way. For, for instance, because my hunches were going to differ on this. Mm-hmm. For instance, I, I wouldn't trade him for Lou Williams. Mm. I, I wouldn't trade him. Well, we do and, differ. And I know, yeah. Well, be, because I look at Lou Williams as a guy who's got a season and a half left on his contract. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I understand that that the Wizards. That, that a backup guard is a big need for the Wizards. At the same time, um, you know, B- Wall and Beal are going to each play 40 minutes in the playoffs, and, and the games are spaced such that they can. And, and I don't know that giving up Oubre is, you know, they can get someone. They can they can sign Mario Chalmers. They can give a second-round pick for, for for someone else. If, if the only way for them to... I think there are probably better, less costly use of assets than than trading Ubre for a guy like Lou Williams. So now you can tell me while I'm wrong. Well, why I'm wrong? I'm actually not going to tell you you're wrong because as you're talking, the the one thing that I can think of why I wouldn't want to do that is that once they've traded, say they make the trade for whatever reason, you know, the Lakers say we'll take Ubre and Trey Burke for Lou Williams. Talent wise, that's a significant upgrade for the Wizards and I don't even mind that it's for a year and a half because I think that's kind of a nice window for the Eastern Conference and then the Wizards should have some flexibility to reload at that point and so I'm not that concerned with that but the concern is that that by doing that they've then traded away the kind of athletic wing that you need you need somebody to fill that slot so if they made if they traded Ubre they would still need to get somebody in that athletic wing mold who can defend, who can shoot the three a little bit, who can, you know, hold that spot down in that kind of uh, small ball lineup. And so they would require yet another deal uh, somewhere along the way. Now, if they could trade Ubre for Lou Williams and then they could make another trade, perhaps using their first round pick for, say, Marcus Morris or something like that, I think you've kind of solved the problem. He's not exactly the right fit, but... He certainly would improve their matchups when you get to somebody like Cleveland, because then you've got two kind of guys who can play small forward or power forward. Or you got, you know, Marcus could play the small forward and he could match up against a guy like LeBron to, you know, spell Otto Porter. You've got Markeith who can play the power forward. And there's some, uh, what's, what's uh, Ernie's favorite word or Ted's optionality? So, yes. We have great optionality. Yeah. JaVale is very erudite. Yes. (laughs) So I think if you're going to trade Oubre for a guy like Lou Williams, who, again, I think that's a no-brainer in terms of talent, you still have to look at the roster construction and filling certain roles, and they would need to then make another move to replace what Oubre brings. Well, cut Lou Williams out of the equation for a second. Do you tra- would you trade Ubre for Marcus Morris? Here's what's here's why I'm super intrigued with Morris. He's uh, he, he's obviously more uh, 
more mature and more ready than Ubre. He's incredibly cheap for what he produces. Yep. Uh, he's signed long term, and you know the the Wizards gambled seemingly with Markeith Morris, and it's paid off to a degree that I would not have expected. It seems like a, a, an additional gamble to bring in his twin brother, but at the <laughs> same time, it's it's kind of like letting it ride. You know, do, do you trade Ubre for Mark for Marcus Morris, and do, you know, do, is that worth it for you? Mm, that's one that I would twitch on. I would probably go ahead and do it. I'm not that enamored with Marcus Morris. You know, I don't think he's that terrific a player. But if just so you know, he doesn't have really great things to say about you either. But yeah, I know he refuses to say anything good about me. Here's the thing with Marcus Morris is that as your third sort of front court guy, your third forward where he can play either a power forward or small forward, I think he'd be a nice fit. And so, yeah, I think I would make that deal. And then, again, I would still be looking at getting somebody like a Lou Williams, which I think that would he, he makes a lot of sense. And you would still have your first-round pick, theoretically, you know, if Detroit was willing to take Ubre straight up for Marcus Morris. You know, yeah. Yeah, you, then you get the Morris brothers back together again. It'll be really interesting to to see what Grunfeld can pull off at the deadline, specifically because there's there's the issue of of the tax line. We've talked about this a little bit, and and that in order to package a a young inexpensive asset, either a pick or Ubre, with with enough salary to both bring someone back and be able to manage going into the offseason, they're going to have to send out a crappy player on a on a pretty ca- crappy contract. They're going to have to send out a, yeah. a, you know, in all likelihood, Andrew Nicholson, maybe someone else. I mean, Trey Burke's an expiring contract and, you know, maybe someone takes him, but yeah. they don't have, they don't have seven, eight, nine million dollar expiring contracts that they can aggregate and bring back mm-hmm. uh, and, and bring back Wilson Chandler. Uh, and you know if they are going to go get Wilson Chandler in his 11 million dollar contract they got to send out a lot of next year money so they can afford to to feel the team and and stay under the luxury tax right and then that means that they have to pay whoever it is that they trade with th- that they're going to have to pay them to take those guys in some form probably a draft pick and i, I got to say i mean we touched on the bench earlier but it's i've got to say that that is the glaring weakness of this team, and that makes it necessary, I think, for them to make a move. It's a combination of the bench being as bad as they are, and I want you to give us some context for that in a second here, mm-hmm. but but the, the bench being terrible provides an opportunity to get better because if you can bring in good players, you go from having bad players to good players. It, it helps. <laughs> there's an opportunity to help uh, a lot. That in combination with the fact that is, we've discussed repeatedly, there's no one in the conference who is leaps and bounds better than them. Mm-hmm. So if if they can improve the team, they can they can go on a deep run. The, the, the ball could bounce their way, and they could get out of the Eastern Conference. Mm-hmm. So my question for you is, how bad is the bench, and therefore how big is the opportunity to improve it? Back in December, before I joined Bullets Forever... <laughs> I took a look at the bench using a minutes-weighted PPA. PPA is player production average. It's a per-possession, per-100 team possessions stat. In other words, it's pace-adjusted. 
and in PPA, average is 100 and higher is better. 45 is replacement level, meaning you could that the that's the level of the worst 11th man in the league. The idea being that you could sign somebody out of the D League who could play about as well. So the Wizards are dead last in bench production, minutes weighted bench production. They're the only team in the league that has a bench that as a group plays below replacement level. Their minutes weighted PPA is 41. Remember that replacement level is 45. The next worst bench belongs to Portland, and they have a PPA of 54. Now, the Wizards do have the ninth best starting unit, and you would think, well, 9 and 30, why aren't they closer to 500? Uh, The reason why is because they're second in the league in starter minutes. Their starters average 34.4 minutes per game. The league average is 29.8. So they play their starters a much heavier load than the rest of the league does. So if I'm hearing you right, the the fact that the starters are so good is actually masking how bad the bench is, A. And B, in, in theory, the bench is no worse collectively than if you were to sign four or five guys from the D-League to uh, to be their bench. Yeah, in theory, you could just cut their entire bench and replace them with guys from D-League, from the D-League, and they would probably be about as good. And the, what's masking how bad the bench is is the heavy minutes that the starters are playing. You know, you take San Antonio, for example, their starters, fifth best starting lineup in the league. They also have the league's best bench. Their starters play about 29 minutes a game. Toronto starters play about 29 minutes a game. I think everyone agrees it would be better if they had a better bench. And at the same time, the hope is, is that given the age of the Wizards' best players, that they can handle a heavy minutes load in the playoffs, provided everyone's healthy then, that, that, that collectively the lack of bench production would be less of an issue come playoff time. Right. That said, it, it would be good if the Wizards has had some depth so that they could be rested come playoff time. I don't know if you can answer this based on what you've got in front of you, mm-hmm. but if the Wizards were to add a guy or guys along the lines of the names we've discussed, mm-hmm. you know, Chandler, Williams, Marcus Morris, those those types of guys... And I don't, and it might not be fair to. There may be a big enough variability to say there aren't those types of guys. But how much better does the bench stand to get as a result from adding those types of players? Right, and the answer would be quite a bit because you'd be replacing replacement level minutes with guys who are average to above average NBA players, and so the bench would be getting significantly better. You'd be getting a significant boost. But the other you know, benefit of getting better quality depth is that you could then start shaving minutes off of the starter load. So instead of Wall playing like you know 35 minutes a game, maybe he could come down to like 33. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but those extra couple minutes of rest could make him a little fresher in the playoffs and could also reduce chances of injury. And when you have a team that's this thin, when literally anybody you pull off the bench is going to perform or is performing at about replacement level, you have a catastrophic drop-off if Wall, Beal, Porter, Gortat, or Morris goes down for any extended period of time. I mean, if anybody goes out for a month, the team is going to be hurting because 
they don't have replacements right now. If you went out and got, say, a Marcus Morris and a Lou Williams, and then, you know, Wall turns his ankle, yeah, Lou Williams is not as good as Wall, but he can at least give you competent NBA-level play for the two or three weeks until Wall can get back into the lineup. They don't have anybody like that on their roster right now. Same is true of up front with, like, Markeith Morris. If Otto Porter goes down, you know, you're talking about going from Otto Porter, who's performing at a very high level this season, versus Ubre, who isn't terrible, but he's, like, right around replacement level, you know? Right, so there's, there's a huge a- drop-off. And, look, I think anyone who's followed the Chicago Bulls closely and what has become of... Joakim Noah and Derek Rose and Luol Deng and Kirk Heinrich knows that you can only grind your best players with heavy, heavy minutes for so long. And if and if the Wizards are going to get the most out of this fantastic young core that these these three guys that that they are building around, they've got to have depth or what could be a five or six year window could turn into a two or three year window. Yeah, exactly. Because because they'll wear down. It it's it's incredibly important, and I am hoping like crazy, hoping beyond hope that Ernie Grunfeld can thread the needle, so to speak, at the at the deadline and come up with a move or two that can both improve the team now and also clean their. Uh, cap up a little bit in the future so that uh, a team of five and a half you know maybe six good players can can grow to eight or nine right and 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 the wizards could be something special that's something we all want absolutely so with that we will wrap up today's episode as i said at the beginning if uh if you like what you're hearing please Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or however you listen to podcasts. My buddy Kevin is on Twitter at Broom underscore Kevin. You can find his Wizards-related work and tons of other great work on Bullets Forever, so check that out. You can also check out KevinBroom.com for Kevin's other writing, including his upcoming mystery novel. I am on Twitter at underscore Ben Becker. Until next time... This is Becker and Broom on Bullets Forever. Go Wizards!